Welcome to Empower, the podcast dedicated to the conversation about women's empowerment and workplace equity in the affordable housing industry. I'm Nicole Graham, and together with my co-host, Tanya Dempsey, we invite you to join us on this journey to explore, enlighten, and inspire. Each episode of Empower is more than just a podcast. Honoring its mission to amplify voices, Empower is a platform where voices are heard, stories are shared, and change is ignited. We delve deep into the challenges, triumphs, and innovations in affordable housing through the lens of women's experiences and leadership. Our guests are changemakers, trailblazers, and thought leaders who bring a wealth of knowledge, experience, and passion. From policymakers to community advocates, from industry veterans to newcomers making waves, we bring you candid conversations that uncover real stories behind affordable housing. Our goal is that by empowering women in the affordable housing sector, we are not just building homes, we're building a movement. So whether you're a professional in the field, someone who's passionate about social change, or just curious to learn more, Empower is your go-to source for insights, inspiration, and inclusive dialogue. Since her appointment in 2020, Tracy has been a transformative figure, leading the nation's third largest public housing authority, which serves 64,000 Chicago families through its diverse rental and homeownership programs. Her tenure at CHA has been marked by an innovative shift towards community building and empowering residents. Under Tracy's leadership, the Chicago Housing Authority has experienced one of its most active development periods in nearly two decades. Nearly 2,000 new mixed-income units have been delivered, with an additional 1,800 units currently in development. Her influence extends well beyond Chicago, though, serving on the board of the Council of Large Public Housing Authorities. She also presides over the Moving to Work Collaborative and is a member of the advisory board for the Stuart Handler Department of Real Estate at the University of Illinois. And that's just the current job. Tracy's rich background includes leadership roles at the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority, Atlanta Housing, and AT&T, as well as an academic pedigree that includes the Wharton School and Emory University. Tracy's career is a testament to her commitment to enhancing public housing and creating opportunities for economic empowerment. Join us as we explore this remarkable journey and the impactful changes she's driving in the world of affordable housing. I am so excited to have her with us today. She is, for me and for many others, a thought partner, a champion, and my friend, Tracy Scott. (laughs) Welcome to Empower Her, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited about anything that's called empowering, and especially when it's empowering women. Great. Okay, so let's dive in. It's Black History Month, and as we reflect on achievements and challenges faced by the African-Americans throughout history, You are an incredibly successful leader in the public housing sector. Can you share how your own journey has been influenced by the legacy of African-American trailblazers? And specifically, who has been an inspiration to you? This is such an interesting question because I wanted to come up with really famous names of women. 
But what I realize is just as housing is very local, it's hyper-local, the work that we do because we're talking about people in their homes, the same thing comes to influence, which is role models who you can really get to know are the biggest influence in me. And so it may sound a bit pithy, but my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother are my biggest role models. And that, to me, is the inspiration. They blaze trails. My great-grandmother, who was born at the turn of the 20th century, owned her own home, ran businesses, and really set the tone for the women who followed her, her daughters and then my her granddaughter, in really just being unapologetic about what they wanted to do and when they wanted to do it. And That, to me, has been the biggest inspiration. And I think that's also important when it comes to our families, because we need to see more role models that our children can get to know them and be inspired by them and be supported by them and mentored. And that is the biggest influence that we can have today. I will add to that, in this industry, I've had one very important role model for me, and that is Renee Glover, who was the executive director of the president and CEO of the Atlanta Housing for nearly 20 years. And she has both been an inspiration, but also a thought leader in this industry and in really talking about families and building what she refers to as the beloved community, Dr. King's uh, beloved community. And that is people of all colors, races, incomes, living together in peace and giving a platform for children to dream and to be their best selves. And she embodied that as well as embodied policies and projects through the Atlanta Housing Authority to really move families forward. That was the focus of all of the work that Renee Glover started. And so she has been an absolute inspiration to me and many others. I love that you started with family because I think one thing that's a consistent theme with women is the realness, the real connection that you make to people that inspire you. Those are your real heroes. For starting with your mom and your grandmother and amazing that she was owning a business, that's before women could have credit cards. She's running a business. So that's amazing. And I like that you started with her and also shared about Renee Glover because we know she's phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. I loved that you have such a focus on family in general. And I think from my experience, you pull that into the policies that you set in Chicago. And that is also pretty inspirational because it's a way that you're personally connecting to the work that you're doing. So do you mind just sharing some policies related to family self-sufficiency or resident services? Because I know Chicago has a pretty robust program. I think it starts with policy and ends with impact. So if you have policies that do not lead to that impact, then I'm of the strong opinion, then you need to find a new policy. And so Chicago Housing Authority has uh, spent a long time before I got here, uh, certainly in starting to build this resident services program. At this point, 
we spend almost $40 million a year on resident services. And for families, that includes uh, innovative programs like a youth employment program that we call Learn and Earn which has been recognized recently because we were recognizing that youth in the summer needed jobs. So we had a jobs program, but in order for them to work, they have to be 16 or older. So we were missing out on a large number of youth that did not have access to jobs, but we needed to make sure that they stayed active, that their brains were still being used during the summer, and that they maybe could acquire some new skills or be exposed to new things. Um, And that exposure is a, a very big part of it. And so we started this Learn and Earn program that is for youth 13 through 15 who earn a stipend for learning and earning. And so those programs are everything from computer programming to becoming cooks, learning how to cook and careers in that. But the biggest part of that is the exposure that they get to new things during the summer that stimulates their minds and their imagination. I love that. I remember learning about that program, I don't know, last year maybe, and just thinking about how impactful that really can be, speaking to the impacts, because we see across the country so many really well-intended policies that in practice, and we're actually counting the impacts, it doesn't seem sometimes to like measure up. But here with the numbers that you all are posting, and like it happens one kid at a time, right? But providing those opportunities and being that alternative to having something to do over the summer. And I really love that. From a policy standpoint, the biggest policy guidance that we have as an organization is a focus on mixed income and mixed use communities. A lot of folks would want to refer to housing authority because we have the word housing in our name that we are just about housing. But housing alone will not help families move forward. You can have the highest quality housing in a neighborhood that lacks basic resources that people need to live and to grow. So that starts certainly with education, good public schools. It starts with having grocery stores and medical access to healthcare, quality healthcare. And when you look at that combination of resources within a community, the other piece of that is that it's mixed income. And why mixed income? We need public housing. Yes, we need assisted housing and supported housing for families that need that uh, support for affordability. But the mixed income is important psychologically because if you think about it, if anybody listening to this thinks about it, you don't know your neighbor's income on either side of you. Very few people share that willingly. And yet we want to say that, well, families all with a low income should all be together. The problem with that is that when you have folks who are sort of homogeneity around one particular characteristic is you lose the zest of life, the exposure to differences, the exposure to conversations. And we know that children grow through exposure. That is one of the biggest ways that they learn and that they can start to dream. And so the mixed income concept, while it's a policy matter that we have to deal with as professionals, it's also important just as humans that we are looking for the variety and diversity of life and that we're all benefiting from that. 
you're absolutely right. What we have seen is just how hard that is when Chicago Housing Authority has that commitment and several housing authorities and other agencies really try to strive for that. And the challenge comes down to a lot of the cost that it ends up being. It can be very hard to create those mixed income communities when so many of the programs like the low-income housing tax credit program and others are really not there to make it work without some real opportunity costs. So I really admire that you and CHA are really not compromising in terms of like, this is the goal and we need to do this. And it sometimes means that we need to put in additional resources wherever those come from to make it happen. But that's how firmly we believe that this is the answer. And We've seen how the concentration of residents at lower incomes, how that works and just doesn't provide the type of opportunities that you're talking about. So, well, you have to be intentional. And we as a society have to be intentional. So we were very intentional. We, and I'm claiming it, but it's others, when public housing was formed in 1937 with the Housing Act of 1937 and before locally, that was a time when they were intentionally segregating families by race and by income as well because it created the stigma that you could point to the place where the poor people lived and concentrating the poverty. And by the way, we could also start to deny resources in those neighborhoods. Many public housing communities had captive schools and those schools had fewer resources than other schools in a public school system. They lacked the other resources within the community that they needed to grow. They were isolated with public transportation and the access to jobs and careers. And so we were very intentional as a society in doing Mm -hmm. that. We can be just as intentional about undoing that because we know that did not work. It worked for some, very few, but it did not work for most. You can only continue doing the same thing for how long, right? We've all proved that there needs to be more than what we have. I also just want to go back and highlight what you said about if you have mixed income setups and a child is trying to dream and they're able to see such a plethora of things you can do when you're older. I worked with someone whose family did not have a lot of money, but his next door neighbor was an accountant and said, oh, you like math? You should try accounting. And He's an accountant now. He's a very successful accountant, but he wouldn't even know that was an available path, probably, if he hadn't heard that. You don't know what you don't know. You were reading my mind because I was so going there about tying it back to policy. It is about exposure. It is about exposure in use. And that actually brings me to my next pointed question about what you think the challenges are for women in this sector, particularly given exposure. And I see that I'm going to be a little bit more targeted to youth and affordable housing and youth or college students and affordable housing. My story is I kind of fell into affordable housing because I went into government and the government agency that I happened to work for was a housing agency. So for you, I know that your story had many different sectors. 
you could just talk a little bit about your thoughts related to how we engage more and get more exposure out there on affordable housing and also how that kind of relates to your story. Well, I'll start with my story, which is what I call a serendipitous story. I did not intend to be in this industry. This is probably the fourth or fifth industry I've been in, starting largely with uh, the telephone company when I was in college and working through a program that was focused on exposure. It's a program called Inroads. And so I interned at the telephone company every summer during college, then ended up working for them, but also being exposed to quite a lot of technology and then moving into financial services and uh, consulting and happening into housing. And the serendipity part is important because it goes to exactly what we're talking about. You can be exposed And you can be curious and open. And if you're curious and open, you will find those opportunities that you had no idea existed. So in this case, for me, in this industry, even when I was in the private sector, I did a lot of work in the community. I worked with public libraries. I worked with recycling and green causes, homelessness and food insecurity. And I was already working on those things in my personal time. And I like to say that I found this industry, this mission-driven organizations and industry, and I'm being paid for my volunteer work because those are the things I was already passionate about. But did I know I could actually get paid to do that? But I had to be open to it because it's government. So I don't think a lot of students and uh, youth who are coming out of school, whether it's a high school or college, are thinking about government because there is a a little bit of a stigma to government work. One, that it's not necessarily going to be stimulating in certain sectors, or it's going to be just sort of the bureaucracy and not creative and innovative and flexible, and that there's necessarily growth. And what we have to do, I think, as an industry is to debunk those myths to get youth more engaged. And the way I sell it is, guess what? Because it's government, there's a lot more opportunity than there may be in a large corporation. You could join an organization of housing authority or someone developing an affordable housing developer And you could have a much broader scope very quickly, which I know is attractive to many youth, (laughs) that you couldn't have in a private sector organization that is answering to shareholders. And that is a big, big difference. And so you can get that experience. You can get paid well. There are great benefits. That's the one thing government is. Governments still have pensions, which don't exist in the private sector. So pros and cons for every individual, but you have to be open and you have to be curious. The other thing I mentioned there is that it is possible to be innovative. In fact, we need innovation in government now because there's not enough money. There should be. There is plenty of money out there. It's just not always being... (laughs) Not going to happen. (laughs) It's not going to the housing in the way that we need it to do. We know that there are billions of dollars out there. There are billions of dollars to save banks over three days on a weekend, on a holiday weekend. Yeah, there's billions of dollars to send to other people. And so that's another story about being intentional about these things. But from a career standpoint, we do need the innovation in this industry in order to meet our mission. I'm feeling so inspired 
every time I talk to you, I feel so inspired. I'm like, <laughs> government's great. It's oh, right. amazing. Because I think you're right. I think that we're not doing a good enough job actually at recruitment mm-hmm. to our industry. And that industry, again, is vast. It's government, it's consulting, it's legal, it's equities. It is tremendous. And yeah. so recruitment for you, how has that gone? I hear a lot of stories about how hard it is to fill government positions and to retain folks. So I'm curious how you are seeing that unfold at Chicago. Well, I think every organization has been affected by the pandemic. So we're all dealing with turnover because of that and people reassessing their lives and how they want to do things. The one thing that I will say is that, and this also goes to my private sector experience, is that even though it's government, we still have to run a viable and sustainable organization. So we have to be fiscally responsible. In fact, we have a higher standard of fiscal responsibility because we are public stewards of these funds. But at the same time, we do have to attract and retain the best talent in order to be the best stewards that we can. And so one of the things that I did when I joined Chicago is we did a comp study on salaries so that we could look at where we were against the market. And we adjusted quite a few salaries there to attract uh, better talent. And there were certain areas that, if you think about it, are always competitive and have become even that much more competitive. So IT and technology. We need technology, but also things like cybersecurity have really grown in importance, and you have to make sure that you're getting good talent there. The other areas in finance. And then as a housing authority, as we have grown And the way that we fulfill our mission, which is real estate development, we are always looking for that talent where we can be that much more effective in the work that we do on a development side. So it's not just about paying rental assistance, but it's also about constructing new housing. And so we may need to make sure that we're getting the talent in to do that. So that focus as an organization is required, whether we're government or not, we're still competing with others in the marketplace and we have to be competitive. We've also just announced changes to our pension system and we have retirement plans. We've increased our benefits. So we have a total compensation package that I feel is much more competitive than it was a few years ago. Wow, that's an easy end on that. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Women's Affordable Housing Network goes out to visit colleges to introduce the very many careers available in affordable housing. And one thing we've noticed, and I also noticed when I was a tax partner, is this generation coming out seems to be much more into making an impact, doing things that are going to change communities. And they're not as focused as I feel like when I was coming out of school, we were like, how much money can we get paid? We're going to work, 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 and we want money. Are you noticing that in the government sector as well? We're seeing some of it. I will say one of the reasons why I'm on the advisory committee at the University of Illinois at Chicago is for that reason specifically to expose college students to government as an opportunity. And so I've spoken in front of some of the classes and this uh, the real estate department at University of Illinois is a new department in the business school. And so you have a lot of finance majors and others that were not thinking necessarily real estate 
or if they were thinking of real estate, not thinking about the public sector real estate opportunities. And so I specifically wanted to be on that advisory board to create a channel to expose more young people to this as a career opportunity. And so we're even talking to them now about internships here where they could work on specific projects. But when I walk into a classroom, often they have absolutely no idea. Yeah, they've heard of the Public Housing Authority, but they're like, that's that government bureaucracy thing over there. Oh, you do real estate development? Oh, you have a billion dollars of investments that are going on yeah. right now? But again, there's exposure, right? You don't know what you don't know. And right. of course, people have their own perception and or their own assumptions about things. But once you expose them, and we have seen quite a few new employees coming from graduate schools in planning as well as in business, and uh, they do have a mission focus. I'd like to say, actually, sometimes we are the original social enterprise. So if that's what's on your mind, come to us. Yeah. <laughs> We're the OG. <laughs> you are the OG for sure. Okay, so on that theme, what advice would you offer to women specifically who want to get into this industry, which really I think is ironically traditionally male-dominated, even though we're seeing a lot of female executive to mid-level. So you see a lot of females in that kind of space, but there's still a lot of male board members. So it'd be like a female executive director, but the board of directors is still male. You know, I'm curious what your advice would be and what you say when you're even talking to these college students. Well, so if I were talking, maybe not the college students, let's talk about some of the women who are in this industry already in lower level positions. And I talk to them quite a lot and have mentored several people since I've been in this, in the roles that I've been in. I don't have the statistics exactly about who, but I have the similar observation, Tanya, uh, to what you were saying, which is that you have a lot of male executive directors and president and CEOs and middle management, sometimes also very male, and then you have women. So in some ways, it's a women-dominated industry because some it's approached yes. as sort of a social service, but we're not in the leadership positions as much. And... I would say, optimistically, we are at a turning point. Many of the housing authorities around the country have had executive directors and president CEOs who are retiring. And we've seen that over the last five years. Yeah. And so it's creating new opportunities for women. Now, the question is, are we going to grab the mantle? The best thing about what Sheryl Sandberg said and Lean In is Lean In. Yeah, you don't even have to read the whole book, though. Certainly encourage people to do it, but lean in. And one of the things that she talks about in that book is that men will take a job, a new job, that they are completely unqualified for. And women will hesitate because they think that they have to be experts in everything in order to take a job that's bigger than them. And the advice there is always take a job that's bigger than you and have the confidence, don't hesitate, and be unapologetic that you can do the good job because you wouldn't be there if you didn't already have the skills and everything you needed to move forward. And yes, you're going to keep learning, but so are those men, but they will take it and not look back and women will hesitate. 
So you just have to step into it. And so there is a lot of opportunity for young women in this industry already and those coming from outside to really take this on. Now, what does that mean to this industry? I think that we will get that much better. And I don't want to be biased about We're this, cheering. but I but because women have a higher level of emotional intelligence, when you talk about the effectiveness of policies, we can see in ways that perhaps others cannot or do not see as often or do not admit to seeing that policies need to be family focused. Policies need to be children-focused. Policies need to be human-focused when it comes to seniors and their needs. It's not just about the bricks and mortar. It has to be about the people. And I think that women in leadership positions can bring that much more effectiveness to the work that we do. And I would even extend the, like, not just taking the position, really going after it. What we know is that, like, women in applying for jobs tend to, not everyone, right? But they tend to like look at the requirements and not apply unless they meet all the requirements. I have certainly done that myself where it's like, oh, they wanted two years of this or they wanted experience with this particular nuance that I don't have. I guess that's not for me. Can't do it. And like men look at that same list and like, oh my gosh, I meet five of 10 requirements. I'm so qualified. I mean, like go in there, right? And there's so much about our socialization. It's like our whole life, we've been told that we have to be perfect. And that's why we don't apply. And men have been told that they're good enough. That's right. And because they were told that they were good enough, they believe that, right? They're qualified. Yeah. And they're qualified. Whether it comes to jobs or dating. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. This is my favorite type of conversation because I think it definitely gets to the heart of why we love women leaders and we love promoting other women leaders. So the question really is, and I love that you said, well, what does this do for the industry? I'm going to throw that back. What can we do to make sure that those positions are women. Ashley? We're here. The Women's Affordable Housing Network is here. And to circle back before you answer, Tracy, too, when you said the industry is only going to get that much better. So if you listen to a podcast, like listen to our podcast after this, and there is a passion, there's an excitement, you are not going to hear men hooting and hollering and screaming and making jokes. It's going to stay on business and focus. But I think that comes to, like you said about feeling it, and we have a firm belief in family. And you feel it in your gut. Even hearing you talk, my stomach gets excited. I think that's women's intuition, right? Like we know what needs to be done. So now that we have the tools and like you said, Tanya, what do women need to do to make sure this happens other than continuing to network, continuing to invite Tracy to come speak to us and hear her journey and her amazing, (laughs) how she got where she is so we can follow footsteps. Yes. Well, I would say to be prepared, there are a few things. And the first one is being curious, being willing to step outside of your comfort zone and be curious about what's around you. So the networking is part of that, right? Asking others, what do you do? Where do you do it? How do you do it? What's your origin story? Because that can help both inform as well as inspire you. The second part is being willing, and this may be hard for some folks, but being willing 
to take on new opportunities. And for many, that means moving because we're in a very local business. So you can't remote work public housing. And so you may have to take that chance and move from the town you grew up or were born or have settled in in order to really move forward. And I think this happens even in the private sector. If you're looking for opportunity, you have to be willing to just say yes. And eventually you may find the place that you can settle in, but you have to just say yes at every opportunity because you just don't know what's going to happen. And that's certainly my story. I wasn't looking for public housing. And somebody said, well, I think you can bring something to this. And and I said, what? Well, I'm a, a product development, marketing, innovation person. What can I bring? And they said, well, of course, the first thing you would think of with public housing is innovation, right? Yes, there's always opportunity to make things better. So it doesn't have to be some highfalutin thing, but you have to be willing to say yes and then explore it. And so for any young person and certainly young women saying yes, being confident and being open to the unknown. And part of what I'm hearing, Tracy, as you're saying that is also being open to risk. And I'll be honest, like so fails. So we talked a little bit about the differences between, you know, men and women and how willing they are to go out there. And part of that is part of the applying for the job or trying to date the person or whatever, right? Is like <laughs> you're casting a wide net, like you're going to fail maybe half the time. And like that that's okay, which you know, when we talk about how we are as a culture of women, right? Trying to get to more of an acceptance of risk and if we don't get the job or if we don't get the whatever it is that we're going after or we try something that's really, really hard and we maybe don't get 100%, but we get 80%, that 80% is like so much better than where we totally. were before. We were only hitting 50% of our capacity and seeing all those things as growth and as wins and successes on our journey and our path. Anyhow, as I think about that, I wonder if you have any stories of places where maybe something didn't go well for you and that became like a either a turning point or a lesson or a resilient moment. I do think that coming into this industry was a turning point for me. I was at a point in my life where I was looking for what next. I'd been in the technology space for a long time and I really was searching for what next. So I was open. My pores, my skin was open. My ears were open. My eyes were open because I had not decided and made a plan about what that next step was going to be. And I was touching on a lot of things and just exploring. And I think even coming out of this pandemic, a lot of people are asking those same questions, like, what do I want with my life? So uh, recently, um, Harvard Business Review did a thing on developing your personal strategic plan. It was a one-page strategic plan, and it was a series of questions to ask yourself, like, what gets you up in the morning? And I'm not, I'm not quoting them, but, but questions that really, to ask yourself, like, where do you want to be? What environment? How do you want to work? what is important to you. 
to then come up with that sort of equation that you can be more targeted. But I think the other thing that holds us back and to what you were saying, Nicole, about risk, you know, the old phrase that men tend to fail upward and women don't take the chances enough to fail. So you can't fail if you're not in the game. And so one of the things that holds us back is self-talk. And I heard this quote the other day, and I was looking for it real quick. I'm going to see if I can find it about self-talk. He said, I learned to talk to myself instead of listening to myself. This is John Gordon. I love that. And if you're into meditation and things like that, they talk about the beginner's mind being open and the ability to stop listening to yourself and listening to negative thoughts because that prevents you from seeing those possibilities. And so I was reading something else recently when they were talking and they said, well, if you are talking to yourself, what do you say? You go, you talk in sort of the second or third person, right? You go, you go. When you talk in first person, like, I can't do it. I, I, I. Mm -hmm. So start talking to yourself in the third person. Go, Tracy. You can do it. Go, Nicole. You can do it. (laughs) And that even motivates you in a very different way than when you just repeat the old narrative in your head of all your failures from the past. Tracy, I, as you know, am not a runner. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I occasionally pretend to be a runner. <clears throat> occasionally, I pretend to be a runner. Uh huh. And I am pretending to run a half marathon, walk, run a half marathon. Yeah. And I was walk running this morning and I got, I had to do six miles and I got to mile five. And that's exactly what I did. Like the, I can't do this. I can't go six yeah. miles. This is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, nope, you've already gone five. You can go the last mile. It's going to be fine. You can do it. And that is literally what I said to myself to get through the last mile. So, yeah. Tracy, just want you to know, this morning, I used that tactic and totally worked. Yeah, good. And, Tanya, I am glad to hear that. And the next time we hear about your running, I would love to hear you say that you're a runner. <laughs> Because we're not pretending to do anything. You are running a half marathon. You signed up for it and you are actively doing it and you're on target, right? You've done all of your practice runs. You are a runner. And if If you're you're making five and six miles, you're not pretending. You know, ironically, Tanya, you're telling the story about motivating yourself and then talking about pretending. All right. I know. Lean in. You don't have to be an Olympian to say you're a runner. If you put two feet in front of each other, fast or slow, you are a runner. And as you know, I'm a runner, and I'm I'm slow and steady, and I am proud of it. <laughs> and and um, but I am absolutely a runner, and nobody can deny me that. The right. other piece of advice that Tracy, as you were talking and providing the quote, which I really like, reminded me of something I often see, which is and try to tell myself, which is. Talk to yourself like you're talking to your best friend or talking to your child, your daughter. Like if something goes wrong, if you make a mistake, what do you tell yourself? We're so hard on ourselves, but like, what would you tell your best friend? Oh my God, like you totally tried. You got almost the way there. You can do it. If you're running and you're at mile five, you got this. You are almost there. 
And that is how we should be relearning to talk to ourselves all the time. Yeah, you wouldn't be standing on the sidelines going, oh, wow, you're not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) You would say... You're almost there, right? (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) You got this. Yeah. Well, this is a wonderful spot to pull some closing statements. So, Tracy, is there anything that you want to leave us with before we close out? I want to be really mindful of your time. And also, part of this podcast is inspiration. And making our listeners feel inspired, which I hope they already do. But do you have any other final, last, inspiring thoughts for us? I think as women in this industry or any industry, if you want to figure out what your future is, you also need to know what your past is. And so I'll leave you with a short story in history at the Chicago Housing Authority. So the first and the longest serving leader of the Chicago Housing Authority is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Wood. And she fought for many things, including integration when segregation was uh, a large part of the agenda of public housing in this city as well as across the country. And she left the job. She was pushed out of her job after serving many years. And they brought in the first executive director So the story here is that they refused to give her the title of executive director or president or CEO. She was called the secretary, but she is our longest serving leader. So no matter what you are called, no matter what somebody else thinks of you, anybody can be the president and CEO in their mind, and you should operate that in order to be successful because Elizabeth Wood's secretary was successful in the work that she did and the influence that she's had on this industry. And she is a pioneer and a trailblazer in that way. And so I leave you with that thought that you can also be that trailblazer. Thank you so much for joining us, Tracy. You are amazing. And I'm so happy that you joined us. So before we close out, I do want to ask you one silly question about what your favorite food is. (laughs) And this it's just to clarify, because we've had a lot of back and forth on this. This is if you're on a desert island sure. and you can choose one food and that food has no negative or positive health impacts. It's warm peach cobbler with vanilla ice cream. That's amazing. Right. Oh, oh amazing. and with the, it has to be warm with the with vanilla ice cream that's melting on it. I believe it's the term. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks again. I'm so excited for what 2024 brings for you. And thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. 